0: Every year, people from across the world come together to celebrate Myasthenia Gravis Awareness Month during the month of June. The Myasthenia Gravis Foundation of America plays a big role this month, as they provide resources, opportunities, education, and more all in the effort to raise awareness for this rare disease. What is this rare disease? Myasthenia Gravis comes from the Greek and Latin words meaning Grave muscular weakness Myasthenia Gravis, or MG, is a long-term autoimmune neuromuscular disorder. Those affected experience weakness in the voluntarily controlled muscles. Throughout the world, about 20 of every 100,000 people have MG. It is an autoimmune condition, meaning the body attacks itself. Specifically the proteins necessary for communication at the neuromuscular junction. In turn weakening the voluntary muscles. This causes symptoms like drooping eyelids, issues with chewing and swallowing, fatigue and weakness, slurred speech, double vision, problems breathing, and balance issues. Physical activity worsens the symptoms, whereas periods of rest can improve them. For a small percentage of those with MG, weakness in the chest could lead to life-threatening respiratory issues. Doctors diagnose this condition through a physical exam, evaluation of patient history, blood tests, and other diagnostic testing. Like many rare disorders, a diagnosis is not always easy to obtain and may take months to years to finalize a diagnosis. The similarity of symptoms to other conditions often results in a misdiagnosis. After doctors have confirmed that one has Mg, treatment consists of medications like cholinesterase inhibitors. Immunosuppressants. IVIG. Plasmapheresis or surgery to remove the thymus gland all depending on the severity of symptoms involved. Although the treatments will not cure M.G., patients may have significant improvement in their muscle strength and quality of life. To learn more and to keep up with what's going on with M.G., look up the The Myasthenia Gravis Foundation of America to stay up to date.
1: Gimme that pull, old time religion, gimme that old. old time religion, it's good enough for me, gimme that old time religion, gimme that old. old time religion, gimme that pull, old time religion, it's good enough for me it was good for the hebrew children it was good for the hebrew children it was good for the hebrew children and it's good enough for me give me that old time religion give me that old Old time religion, give me that. Old time religion, it's good enough for me. Give me that old time religion, give me that. Old time religion, give me that. Old time religion, religion, it's good enough for me. It will do when the world's on fire. It will do when the world's on fire. It will do when the world's on fire. Good enough for me. Oh, give me that old time. Oh. It's good enough for me. Give me that old time religion,
2: It's good enough. It's good enough for me. In the Roman Catholic Church the institution of matrimony was raised to the level of a sacrament by the Council of Trent in 1547 declaring sacramental marriage as part of canon law. On March 3, 1547, at Session 7, the Council of Trent declared that there were seven sacraments of the new law, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, extreme unction, orders, and marriage. Marriage is the last to be considered a sacrament by the Church. The canons of the time did not identify the specific grace that the seventh sacrament conferred. This canon is using the word, matrimony, instead of the word, marriage. There is a reason for this choice. Marriage is a simple ceremony. As seen in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 when Yahweh brought Eve to Adam. This canon is rejecting any criticism of the Catholic Church's additions and requirements to the simplicity of marriage seen in the Garden of Eden and throughout the Old Testament into the end of the Second Temple era. In short, the Catholic Church enclosed marriage within the sacrament of matrimony and through that vehicle could declare whatever it wanted with respect to matrimony. The belief that marriage was a holy development, a Christian vocation and a way of participating in the life of the Church was ancient and long-held before the Council of Trent. The Catholic Church stopped priests from marrying in the 16th century. The Church's prohibition on priests' marrying and celibacy has a long and complex history. According to the Roman Catholic Church one of the impediments to a Catholic marriage includes that of holy orders, although for some, a dispensation can be given. Pope Francis made headlines across the globe when he suggested he was open to the idea of ordaining married men as a way to alleviate priest shortages in remote areas. This did make news headlines. Many were up in arms, but did you know that paths, although they are narrow, already exist for married men to enter priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church. There is special dispensation for priests to marry. There is no contradiction for a priest to marry. Celibacy in the Western Church is a temporary prescription, I do not know if it is settled in one way or another, but it is temporary in this sense. Reported Pope Francis in an interview published on March 10, 2023. And deacons already had established the rule of marriage with the ordained clergy, at the Second Vatican Council it was decreed that the diaconate, when it was restored as a permanent order in the hierarchy, could be open to mature married men, later clarified to mean men over the age of 35. This is in keeping with the ancient tradition of the church, in which married men were ordained into ministry. Also in keeping with ancient practice is the expectation that while a married man may be ordained, an ordained man, if his wife should die, may not marry again without special permission. Priests being allowed to marriage wouldn't be a long stretch. Experts report as many as 1-100-20 Catholic priests in the U.S. are currently married. And for the record the Independent Catholic Church has already demonstrated that a priest can be married and still be an affected Catholic priest. Eastern Catholic churches have allowed the ordination of married men as priests for centuries. In 2014 Pope Francis quietly lifted a 1-100-14-year-old ban on married Eastern Catholic priests serving outside their right's home country, opening the door for them to serve in the U.S. According to the book, Keeping the Vow, The Untold Story of Married Catholic Priests, written by D. Paul Sullins, Associate Professor at the Department of Sociology, at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. According to Vatican Figures, between 1964 and 2004, 69 0 63 men left the priesthood worldwide, Sullins wrote. Thousands resigned because they wanted to marry. Some were reported to regret their decisions. And 11 200-13 were allowed to return to priestly service. That included widows or men who had their marriages annulled, Sullins said. The number of Roman Catholic Catholic priests in the U.S. has dropped by more than 30% since 1965, when at that time there were 58,632 priests, according to the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate. In 2016, there were 37,192 priests reported. The church was a thousand years old before it definitively took a stand in favor of celibacy in the 12th century at the Second Lateran Council held in 1139, when a rule was approved forbidding priests to marry. Later at the Council of Trent in 1563, the tradition of celibacy was reaffirmed. In the early 11th century Pope Benedict VIII responded to the decline in priestly morality by issuing a rule prohibiting the children of priests from inheriting property. A few decades later Pope Gregory VII issued a decree against clerical marriages. The practice of priestly celibacy began to spread in the Western Church in the early Middle Ages. The first written mandate requiring priests to be chaste came in AD 304. Canon 33 of the Council of Elvira stated that all, bishops, presbyters, and deacons and all other clerics were to, abstain completely from their wives and not to have children. Then in 325, the Council of Nicaea, convened by Constantine, rejected a ban on priests marrying requested by Spanish clerics. Regardless, the early Christian church had no hard and fast rule against clergy marrying and having children. Many in the Roman church try explain the requirement of priestly celibacy was because Jesus was celibate and unmarried, and so were many of his disciples. Though the Bible never says that Jesus was married or celibate, it doesn't address he wasn't either. It is assumed that many of his apostles not married, but we have no record that were also chaste and celibate. The only confirmed apostle that was married for the record is Peter. And by Catholic tradition he was the first pope. And later on, as popes go, some popes were the sons of popes. For centuries, the Catholic Church has maintained a strict policy of celibacy for its priests, requiring them to abstain from marriage and other sexual relationships. To be clear the Catholic Church distinguishes between dogma and regulations. The male-only priesthood is Catholic dogma, irreversible by papal decree. The ban on marriage is considered a regulation or policy, something the Pope can change at himself. However, the formal requirement for celibacy among Catholic priests did not become standard until the Middle Ages. The Church justifies its requirement for celibacy on these theological grounds. It believes that celibacy allows priests to more fully dedicate themselves to their religious duties, as well as to symbolize their spiritual marriage to the Church. It is also seen as a way to avoid the material concerns of marriage and family and to more fully live the simple and humble life that Christ exemplified. However, there have been rare exceptions to this rule, such as when dispensation is granted to a priest who wishes to marry. Despite the church's strict stance on celibacy, there have been exceptions to the rule. One way that the church has allowed for priests to marry is through a process called dispensation. Dispensation is the official permission granted by the church to allow for exceptions to the normal rules. Each diocese is allowed up to two active married priests. According to the Pastoral Provision Office, which facilitates the Vatican's policy, dispensation may be granted for a variety of reasons, such as when a married Protestant minister converts to Catholicism and wishes to continue his ministry as a Catholic priest. One such exception occurred in the case of Father Francis Albera, who was granted dispensation by the Church in the early 20th century. Let's look at Father Albera as a case study. It was granted in cases such as Father Albera's, where an individual is already a priest and wishes to marry for personal reasons. Dispensation is not granted lightly, and the Church considers each case individually to ensure that it is consistent with Catholic teachings and values. Father Francis Albera, was a respected Catholic priest, when he announced his intention to marry, it caused quite a stir in the church. Celibacy had long been a tradition in the clergy, and many were shocked that a priest would want to marry. However, what surprised people even more was that the church eventually granted Father Albera permission to do so. Father Albera had always felt that he was missing out on something by being celibate. Despite his love for the church, he felt a deep longing for companionship, intimacy, and a family. He expressed these feelings to his superiors, who initially dismissed his concerns. However, Albera persisted and eventually submitted a formal request for dispensation from celibacy. The church's decision to grant Father Albera's request did not come easily. Church officials spent several months considering the request and examining the implications of allowing a priest to marry. Here are some of the factors that were taken into account.
3: Father Albera's long and dedicated service to the church. His genuine desire to marry and start a family. The fact that he had fallen in love with a woman whom he wanted to marry and the potential benefits of allowing priests to marry, such as reducing instances of sexual misconduct and providing better emotional support for clergy members. After careful consideration, the Church ultimately determined that Father Albera's request was reasonable and granted his request for dispensation. Many people were shocked and outraged when they heard that a Catholic priest was getting married Some felt that it was a betrayal of the church's traditions, while others believed that it was a sign of progress and modernization. At the time the media ran numerous stories about Father Albera's marriage, and it quickly became a topic of national debate. The church's decision to allow Father Albera to marry was not unanimously supported. Some officials felt that it set a dangerous precedent and could lead to a weakening of the institution of celibacy. However. Others believed that it was the right decision and expressed support for Father Albera. In general, church officials tried to downplay the controversy and emphasize that it was a unique situation that did not have broader implications for church policy. In the aftermath of Father Albera's marriage, the church released several statements to address the controversy. These statements emphasized that the Church's decision to allow Father Albera to marry was based on unique circumstances and did not signal a change in policy regarding celibacy. However, the Church also acknowledged that the situation had raised important questions about the role of celibacy in the Church and vowed to continue examining the issue. While the Church's official response was relatively silent, The controversy surrounding Father Albera's marriage did have an impact on church policy. The situation forced the church to confront some of the challenges associated with celibacy and consider whether changes to the policy were necessary. While there have not been any significant policy changes to date, the church has signaled that it is open to further discussion on the issue. Here is a brief summary of Father Albera's life. Father Francis Xavier Albera, a Jesuit priest, born 1771, was a Spanish priest who was born and lived in the Philippines. He married his wife Archangela in 1796. They had two children together before he died in 1842. Father Albera was famous in the Philippines and he has a lot of followers. The main reason why this priest had so many followers is because he was a good leader for the people he served he was known for his work with the poor. He was also known for his efforts to help the sick and poor in his community. Additionally, he was the founder of the Society of St. Francis Delaware Sales. When Father Albera was 15 years old, he decided to join the military and fought against Napoleon Bonaparte during the Peninsular War, 1807-1814. He served for over ten years before returning home to Spain where he continued his religious studies at the University of Salamanca until 1799 when he became ordained as a priest. Father Albera returned to Spain after being captured by the French during their occupation of Madrid in 1808. However, he did not stay long because King Ferdinand VII had issued an order for all priests related to Napoleon's rule be imprisoned or exiled from Spain. While there have not been any major changes to church policy on celibacy in the wake of Father Albera's marriage, the situation has opened the door to the possibility of future changes. Some officials have suggested that the church should be more open to the idea of allowing priests to marry, while others believe that celibacy should remain a requirement for all clergy. As the church continues to evolve, there may be further shifts in policy on this issue. The case of Father Francis Albera and his dispensation to marry sheds light on the complexities of church policy on celibacy and the possibility of change. While the church continues to require celibacy of its priests, there is growing debate and consideration for potential change. Who else was married in the church? There has been conspiracy theories involving Karol Josef Wajdala, a priest with mere beginnings from Poland. He was ordained a priest in 1946 and went on to earn a doctorate in theology. He became a bishop in 1958 and was appointed Archbishop of Krakow in 1964. But before becoming a priest, Karol Wajdala fell in love with a young woman named Olga Maria Kishilniak. However, her family disapproved of their relationship and she ultimately decided to enter a convent. After Wajdala became a priest, he met a young woman named Anna Schaefer but their relationship was also cut short when she decided to marry someone else. Then Wajdala formed a close 32-year friendship with a married woman, Anna-Teresa They corresponded frequently and met in person several times, sharing a deep intellectual and spiritual connection. Some have speculated that their relationship was romantic in nature, but others have pointed out that their letters don't contain any explicit evidence of this. In any case, after Wajtala became Pope John Paul II, his relationship with Timiunyeka cooled. In the 1996, the book His Holiness, by Bernstein and Politi, she was interviewed and they dedicated 20 pages of the book to her. They asked her if she had ever developed any romantic relationship with John Paul II. However one-sided it might have been, she responded, No, I never fell in love with the cardinal. How could I fall in love with a middle-aged clergyman? Besides, I'm a married woman. Some people within the Catholic Church questioned whether his relationships could be considered a violation of Church doctrine, while others saw them as evidence of his human fallibility. There is no evidence of a marriage or affairs during his priesthood to his death. However, despite the controversy surrounding his personal life, Pope John Paul II remains widely respected and revered for his leadership and contributions to the Catholic Church. But there have been those Catholic priests who were not celibate before they became Pope, and those who were legally married before becoming Pope. They include Pope Felix III, who died March 1, 4-90-2, who himself the son of a priest, fathered two children, one of which was the mother of Pope Gregory the Great he was widowed before his election as Pope. Then there was Pope Hormistas, Bishop of Rome, from July 20, 514, to his death. He widowed before he took holy orders, but had a son, who later became Pope Silverius. Pope Adrian II began his papacy December 14, 867 and he had a wife, Stephania, before he took holy orders, she was still living when he was elected Pope and resided with him in the Lateran Palace with their daughter until they were murdered by Eleutherius. Brother of Anastasius Bibliothecarius, the Church's Chief Librarian. Pope John Seventeenth, born John Sicco, is another who was the Bishop of Rome and nominal ruler of the Papal States for about seven months in 1003. He married before his election as Pope and had three sons, all who entered the priesthood. Born Guéphiquois. Pope Clement IV was Bishop of Rome from February 5, 1265 until his death. He too married before taking holy orders and had two daughters, both who entered the convent. And our final married Pope, Pope Honorius IV, born Giacomo Savelli, was head of the Catholic Church and ruler of the Papal States from April 2, 1285 to his death. His wife died before entering the clergy but bore him at least two sons. And then there are those popes who fit into a different category, those who fathered illegitimate children before receiving holy orders. Pope Pius II, who reigned from 1458 to 1464, was not married. And fathered at least two children, both born before he formally entered the clergy. The first child, fathered while in Scotland, died in infancy. A second child fathered while in Strasbourg, with a Breton woman named Elizabeth, died fourteen months later. He delayed becoming a cleric, because of the requirement of chastity. There also was Pope Innocent Thirteenth, who reigned from 1484 to 1492, he was not married and also had two children. Both were born before he entered the clergy. He married off his elder son Francisetto Saibo, to the daughter of Lorenzo de' Medici, who in return obtained the cardinal's hat for his 13-year-old son Giovanni, who became Pope Leo X. And Pope Clement VII who reigned from 1523 to 1534 and was not married who had a relationship with a slave girl, possibly Simonetta de Colavecchio, of African descent. They are rumored to have had one child identified as Alessandro de' Medici, Duke of Florence. And then there are the popes that are known to have or suspected of having fathered illegitimate children after receiving holy orders. These would include Pope Julius II reigned. 1503 to 1513, he was not married. And had three illegitimate daughters, one of whom was Felice de la Rovere, born in 1483, 20 years before his election as Pope, and 12 years after his enthronement as Bishop of Lausanne.
2: Pope Paul III, who reigned from 1534 to 1549, again not married reportedly had a mistress Silvia Ruffini. It is reported that they had three sons and one daughter. He fathered four illegitimate children after his appointment as Cardinal Deacon of Santi Cosimo and Damiano. He eventually broke his relations with Rufini in 1513. He made his illegitimate son, Pier Luigi Farnese, the first Duke of Parma. Pope Pius IV reigned from 1559 to 1565 and was not married. Allegedly here sired three children, one was a son and two daughters. Pope Gregory XIII reigned from 1572 to 1585. He too was not married. He reportedly had an affair with Maddalena Fulcini. He received the ecclesiastical tonsure in Bologna in June of 1539, and subsequently had an affair that resulted in the birth of Giacomo Boncompagni in 1548. Giacomo remained illegitimate, with Gregory later appointing him gonfalonier of the church, governor of the castel Sant'Angelo and Fermo. Pope Leo XII reigned from 1823 to 1829. Not married and allegedly had three offspring. As a young prelate, he came under suspicion of having a liaison with the wife of a Swiss guard soldier and as a papal ambassador to Germany allegedly fathered three illegitimate children. So, yes some popes were married, some prior to ordination, some after, some had children, some legitimately and some not. Marriage and celibacy as we see was not as pure to the Catholic hierarchy as many of us were lead to believe growing up. And we are only speaking of popes, the heads of the Roman Catholic Church. We aren't even mentioning bishops or priests. Celibacy. If you were to ask these popes I am not sure they couldn't pass a lie detector test if they were to say, yep, I'm celibate. Now these popes are alleged to be sexually active during their pontificates. Sergius III 9, 0, 4 through 9, 11, was said to be sexually active during his pontificate, and he was accused by his opponents of being the illegitimate father of Pope John XI. Now John XI was the brother of Alberic II. The latter being the offspring of Morosia and her husband Alberic I, and so John II may have been the son of Morosia and Alberic and not Sergius. Pope John X reign 914 to 928 reportedly had romantic affairs with both Theodora and her daughter Morosia, according to Liutprand of Cremona in his Antipodosis. Pope John XII follows. He reigned from 955 to 964. John was accused by adversaries of adultery and incest. Benedict of Soract noted that he had a collection of women. According to Lyotprand of Cremona, they testified about his adultery, which they did not see with their own eyes. But nonetheless knew with certainty, he had fornicated with the widow of Rainier, with Stefana his father's concubine, with the widow Anna, and with his own niece, and he made the sacred palace into a whorehouse. According to Chamberlain, John was a Christian Caligula whose crimes were rendered particularly horrific by the office he held. Some sources report that he died eight days after being stricken by paralysis while in the act of adultery. Others say that he was killed by the jealous husband while in the act of committing adultery. Pope John XII is a hard act to follow. But we have one more to add to the list. Pope Alexander XI who reigned from 1492 to 1503. It is reported that he had a long affair with Venatza de Cataniae while still a priest, before he became Pope, and by her had his illegitimate children Cesare Borgia, Giovanni Borgia, Geoffrey Borgia, and Lucrezia. A later mistress, Giulia Farnese, was the sister of Alessandro Farnese, and gave birth to a daughter Laura while Alexander was in his sixties and reigning as Pope. Alexander fathered at least seven, and possibly as many as ten, illegitimate children. Using his offspring to build alliances with a number of important dynasties in order to promote his family's interests, he appointed Giovanni Borgia as captain general of the church and made Cesare a cardinal of the church, he also created independent duchies for each of them out of papal lands. But not all sexually active popes preferred women, some fancied the men. Pope Paul II who reigned from 1464 to 1471 had an alleged affair with a page. There are those who have thought he died of indigestion arising from eating melon. But others suggest he died while being sodomized by a page. Pope Sixtus IV, 1471-1484 to According to Stefano in Feshera, Sixtus was a, lover of boys and sodomites, awarding benefices and bishoprics in return for sexual favors, and nominating a number of young men as cardinals, some of whom were celebrated for their good looks. In all fairness though, Infesura had partisan allegiances to the Colonna family and so is not considered to be always reliable or impartial when referring to Sixtus. Pope Leo X, reigning from 1513 to 1521 was accused, after his death, of homosexuality by Francesco Gicciardini and Paolo Giovio. Some suggest he may have had ulterior motives in offering an appointment to to Marcantonio Flaminio which led to this accusation. Pope Julius III, 1550-1555 had an alleged long love affair with Innocenzo Siaci del Monte which was a cause of public scandal. The Venetian ambassador at that time reported that Innocenzo shared the Pope's bed. Pope Benedict IX, 1032-1044 not only like the boys but the girls as well, and he had an interesting papacy, accused by Bishop Beno of Ciacenza of many vile adulteries. Pope Victor III referred in his third book of dialogues, on Benedict's behavior as his rapes, murders and other unspeakable acts of violence and sodomy. His life as a pope was so vile, so foul, so execrable, that I shudder to think of it. His life prompted Peter Damien to write an extended treatise against illicit sex, especially homosexuality. In his Liber Gammarianus, Damien accused Benedict of routine sodomy and bestiality in sponsoring orgies. Benedict was briefly forced out of Rome in 1036, but returned with the help of Emperor Conrad II. Then in September 1044. Opposition to Benedict's dissolute lifestyle forced him out of the city again and the elected Sylvester III replaced him. But Benedict didn't give up. Benedict's forces returned in April of 1045 and expelled his rival, allowing Benedict to resume the papacy. Doubting his own ability to maintain his position, and wishing to marry his cousin, Benedict decided to resign in May 1045. He consulted his godfather, the pious priest John Gratian, about the possibility of resigning. Benedict offered to give up the papacy into the hands of his godfather if he would reimburse him for his election expenses. John Gratian paid him the money and was recognized as Pope in his stead. As Gregory VI, Benedict soon regretted his resignation and returned to Rome, taking the city and remaining on the throne until July 10, 46, although Gregory VI continued to be recognized as the true Pope. At the time, Sylvester III also reasserted his claim. A number of influential clergy and laity besought Emperor Henry III to cross the Alps and restore order. Henry intervened, and at the Council of Sutri in December 1046. Both Benedict and Sylvester were declared deposed while Gregory was encouraged to resign because the arrangement he had entered into with Benedict as it was considered simoniacal, that is, to have been paid for. A German, Clement II, was chosen to succeed Gregory. Benedict had not attended the council and did not accept his deposition. When Clement II died in October of 1047, Benedict seized the Lateran Palace in November. Again become Pope, but he was driven away by German troops in July of 1048. To fill the power vacuum, the German-born Damasus II was elected Pope and universally recognized as such. Benedict refused to appear on charges of simony in 1049 and was ultimately excommunicated. It seems Benedict VI was a horny, bisexual, raping and warmongering egomaniacal Pope and not very Christ-like at all. Like it was said in the beginning, The church's prohibition on priests marrying and celibacy has a long and complex history and this podcast has just scraped the tip of the iceberg. The question of whether priests should be allowed to marry remains a complex and contentious issue within the Roman Catholic Church. While some argue that celibacy is central to the priesthood and helps priests focus on their spiritual duties, others point out that mandatory celibacy has resulted in numerous instances of sexual abuse by clergy, which cannot be proven. Additionally, many people believe that allowing priests to marry would help address the shortage of priests in many communities, as well as improve their mental health and overall well-being. So, what's the solution? Well, it's not as simple as just allowing priests to get married. Ultimately, any decision regarding priestly celibacy in marriage would need to take into account a variety of factors, including tradition, theology, psychology, and practical considerations related to ministry and pastoral care. Social norms need also to be considered such as the divorce rate in the U.S. is around 44.6% of marriages. Plus the average length of a marriage that ends in divorce in the U.S. is 8 years. And women file for 66% of all U.S. divorces.
3: Regardless of where the Roman Church publicly and officially stands on this issue, precedence has been set, whether intended or not. But it's time to put this controversy to rest once and for all. Let's start with the basics. Celibacy is the practice of abstaining from sexual relations, while marriage is the union of two people in a committed relationship. Let's keep this straight. And while there is no direct statistical correlation between celibacy and an increased risk of sexual abuse, studies have shown that sexual repression or a lack of healthy sexual expression can lead to negative consequences such as aggression, depression, and anxiety. And there is no reputable scientific evidence to suggest a statistical correlation between celibacy and an increased pedophilia. In fact, research indicates that celibate individuals are less likely to exhibit sexual deviancy, including engaging in inappropriate acts with minors. Pedophilia itself is a complex psychological disorder and does not necessarily stem from sexual activity or lack thereof. It is crucial to recognize this common misconception and address the root causes of pedophilia through therapy and support, rather than stigmatizing celibacy as a risk factor for child abuse. Ultimately, while celibacy itself may not directly cause abuse, it is important for any religious institution to prioritize healthy expressions of sexuality and address any power imbalances within their structures in order to prevent and address the separate issues of abuse. But one thing is clear. The Roman Catholic Church needs to have an open and honest conversation about this issue. It's time to listen to all sides of the debate and come to a decision that reflects the needs and values of the church as a whole. In the end, whether or not priests should be allowed to marry is a question that will continue to be debated for years to come. But by engaging in a thoughtful and respectful dialogue, we can move closer to a resolution that honors the church's past while embracing its future.
4: This is Father Chris reminding each of us to act justly, love with mercy, and walk humbly with God.
1: Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. It's good enough for me. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that time religion give me that old-time religion it's good enough for me it was good for the hebrew children it was good for the hebrew children it was good for the hebrew children and it's good enough for me give me that old time religion give me that Old time religion, give me that. Old time religion, it's good enough for me. Oh. Give me that old time religion, give me that. Old time religion, give me that. Old time religion, 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 it's good enough for me. It will do when the world's on fire. It will do when the world's on fire. It will do when the world's on. Fire.
4: Is myasthenia gravis awareness month myasthenia gravis is an autoimmune disease which means that a patient's immune system overreacts causing damage to organs or tissues in the body in the case of mg the immune system releases proteins known as autoantibodies that interfere with the normal communication between muscle and nerve cells and in turn results in weakness plus Like many autoimmune diseases, MGS exact cause is unclear. It may have to do with genetic factors, environmental factors, or a combination of both. Although the condition occurs spontaneously in most patients, it could also be caused because of a thymoma, or non-cancerous tumor on the thymus gland. As is the case with other autoimmune diseases, MG has risk factors that are not well understood. Mg is considered a sporadic disease, meaning it can strike anyone, at any time. It can occur in people of all ethnic backgrounds and ages, but tends to be more common among women younger than 40, and men older than 60. For people with myasthenia gravis, symptoms present themselves differently in each diagnosed person. The combination of symptoms and severity of symptoms are unique for everyone, which is why mg is called the snowflake disease those diagnosed with mg want to make the most of their energy as they cope with the symptoms of myasthenia gravis this includes adjust your eating routine try to eat when you have good muscle strength take your time chewing your food and take a break between bites of food you might find it easier to eat small meals several times a day Also, try eating mainly soft foods and avoid foods that require more chewing, such as raw fruits or vegetables. Use safety precautions at home. Install grab bars or railings in places where you need support, such as next to the bathtub or next to steps. Keep your floors clean, and move area rugs. Outside your home, keep paths, sidewalks, and driveways cleared of leaves snow and other debris that could cause you to stumble. Use electric appliances and power tools. To help you maintain your energy, try using an electric toothbrush, electric can openers and other electrical tools to perform tasks. Wear an eye patch. If you have double vision, an eye patch can help relieve the problem. Try wearing one to write, read or watch television. Periodically switch the eye patch to the other eye to help reduce eye strain. If the double vision persists see an eye doctor to see if a prescription prism would be appropriate in your eyeglasses. Rest your eyes. Try not to stare at screens or read for long periods of time. Give your eye muscles a chance to recharge, too. Prioritize sleep. Sleep and rest are your best friends. Focus on good sleep hygiene. Stick to a regular bedtime and wake time every day. Don't eat too close to bedtime. Have a screen-free wind-down routine with relaxing practices like reading, taking a bath, or drinking hot tea. Keep your bedroom cool and dark to set the stage for sound sleep. Take naps. No need to feel guilty about midday snooze sessions. Your body needs the rest. If you can work it in. Lie down, turn off your phone, and grab some z's to help your body relax. Schedule Stillness If you can schedule breaks in your day, do it. Spend that time resting your body and mind, meditate, do some gentle stretching, or simply sit in silence. Plan If you have chores, shopping, or errands to do, plan the activity for when you have the most energy. Talk to your employer. If your job is physically, even emotionally stressful, you may want to bring your employer into the loop. Ask if there are ways to make temporary adjustments regarding how long you work, the physical activity required in your job, or the number of shifts you take. Myasthenia gravis may qualify as a disability under the American Disabilities Act, particularly if you need to take time away from work. You may also be eligible to apply for, and receive social security disability benefits. An exacerbation, or flare, is when your symptoms increase in frequency and or become more severe. It is important to contact your doctor and tell him about any change in symptoms or issues. Complications can occur when a treatment or medication causes MG to flare, or triggers a crisis. A crisis may occur suddenly or gradually. The ability to stay ahead of the game before it becomes a crisis is crucial. Your physician can intervene to ensure that the exacerbation does not become a crisis, but you have to communicate. It is important for you to seek care as soon as you feel a crisis coming on to ensure proper medical intervention. If you are feeling short of breath. It is very important to call 911 or get medical help immediately. Coping with myasthenia gravis can be difficult for you and your loved ones. Stress can worsen your condition, so find ways to relax. Ask for help when you need it. So learn all you can about your condition, and have your loved ones learn about it as well. You all might even benefit from a support group a place where you can meet people who understand what you and your family members are going through. This public service announcement has been brought to you by, the In His Holy Name Ministry and Father Chris, a fellow Myasthenia Snowflake.